Well, I know it, uh, it looks like Christmas outside, but uh, it's Thanksgiving weekend, right? I hope, hope that uh, you found joy and, and uh, appreciation as you celebrated Thanksgiving this past week. Um, you know, our country takes a, a day to especially think about giving thanks, but uh, it, it's something that, that really is to be a more central, more regular part of our lives as followers of Jesus. And so because of that, the Bible really has a lot to say about uh, giving thanks, about thankfulness. And this morning we're going to um, study, focus on a psalm that, that uh, it, it itself focuses on giving thanks. So it's an appropriate psalm for this time of year, but, but really it'd be appropriate for any time of year. So Psalm 100 is where we're going to be this morning, but before we look at that psalm, I want to I kind of set the stage by asking a question, and this is obviously a hypothetical question because I'm starting it by, by stating, if you or I were God... Of course we're not, we don't even really need to pretend to be, but, but just for the sake of this question, if you, were, if you or I were God, and we were all powerful, all loving, all knowing, all wise, how would we go about eliciting from mankind the, the worship which we rightly deserve? Right? If, if, if that's who we were, how would we go about that? In other words, in a world filled with humans who all possess a free will, how does one who ought to be worshipped lead people to worship? There's, uh, there's a story that, that I think kind of plays into this. Many of us know well the story found in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, in that story, he erects a giant gold image of himself and then sought to have people worship that image of him, and, and of course, by extension, then worship him, himself. When King Nebuchadnezzar thought about, okay, so how do I get people to worship this image and worship me? Here's what he came up with. He gathered all the people together. He, he stood before them, and I'm sure had his soldiers there with him for some might, for some force, and then commanded that the people fall down and worship this idol. And if they chose not to, well, then the king would have them seized and thrown into a fiery furnace where they would expect to meet certain death. He threatened them, is what he did. Now, now, we know the story, right? We know Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We know that they refused to bow down. They were then uh, thrown into the furnace as a result and were miraculously kept alive by God. We know that story. It's one we probably typically learn as a, as a young kid. But, but for this morning, let's, let's especially take note of King Nebuchadnezzar and, and what he was trying to do there, trying to force people to worship him. He compelled the people into worshiping him, or, or to at least look like they were worshiping him. That, that, that's how he decided to go about doing it. Well, when it, call, when it comes to Psalm 100, uh, the Bible commentaries that, that, that I was referencing seemed to agree that, that Psalm 100 is most likely a post-exilic psalm, and, and really what that means is that it was written after the exile, 
It was written after the people of Israel returned to the promised land following their exile in Babylon. And so that being said, the, the people at the time of Psalm 100 being written would have probably been quite familiar with that story about King Nebuchadnezzar and the statue and the furnace. They were familiar with an example of, of somebody seeking to force people to worship him. And so in light of that, and, and in light of God's temple having been rebuilt upon the people returning to the promised land, I think the question could have rightly been asked, okay, so then how is God, who unlike Nebuchadnezzar truly is worthy of worship, how is God going to elicit worship from his people? Is there going to be anything different from what King Nebuchadnezzar had tried? Is he just going to take a page from King Nebuchadnezzar's playbook, but, but just do it better than King Nebuchadnezzar did? Or is God going to do something different? Will worship be brought to him for a different reason? And so what we're going to see in Psalm 100 this morning is that God chose to do something different. He chose to go about it a different way than the Nebuchadnezzar did. Now, now as I've, uh, as I've stated in, in sermons before, looking at different psalms, the book of Psalms is a text that is poetic. It's filled with poetry. And, and even if we don't know the specific details about Hebrew poetry, we probably know enough from experience with English poetry to know that, that poetry in general is not meant to be read like a biography or like a news article or a textbook or things like that. It's just different. Well, when it comes to Hebrew poetry, um, it's the same thing. It's read a little differently. There's, there's some common forms of Hebrew poetry. One of, the, one of those common ones is an acrostic poem. Um, some of the psalms are written where each line starts with a subsequent letter from the Hebrew alphabet. Um, and then when you get to Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, that's a psalm that is a giant acrostic. Each each stanza contains eight lines where each of the eight lines starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet and then each stanza goes through the subsequent letters. So it's a giant acrostic poem. Another form of, of Hebrew poetry is, is called a chiasm. Chiasm. And in, in that kind of poetry, certain lines or phrases match up with each other. So, so for example, if, if it was a five-line chiastic poem, then you would have line one and five relating to each other. You'd have line two and four relating to each other. And then you'd have line three in the middle, which would be the focal point of, of the poem, focal point of the psalm. Now, now, we might be used to the focal point being stated right off the top, or, or maybe you save that till the end, and that's kind of the punchline. It drives home you know, the point, but, but in a chiasm, the focus is on the middle of the poem. And Psalm 100 has all the hallmarks of a chiasm. So um, since it's only five verses long, I, I'm just going to read through, all the way through Psalm 100, then we'll go back this morning and, and look at it a little bit more closely. So I'd encourage you to open there in your Bibles, put up on your phones. Uh, it's page uh, 500 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow there. But Psalm 100 is it's entitled, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. And this is what it says. 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, as I, as I said, Psalm 100 has the, uh, the, the marks, the structure of a chiasm, but it's not found in this psalm specifically by matching up verses 1 and 5, 2 and 4, and then having 3 in the middle. Now, 3 is, verse 3 is the focal point of the psalm, but, but not because of 1 and 5, 2 and 4. In verses 1 through 4, there are seven different commands given regarding worship. So in verse 1, the first one is make a joyful noise or, or shout as the NIV translates it. In verse 2, the next one is serve the Lord. In verse 2, come into his presence. And then verse 3, know, know that the Lord, he is God. Verse 4 says enter his gates. Then further in verse 4, give thanks and then bless his name. So there's seven commands in those, in those four verses, and the middle command is the one in verse three, is no. And it's not only set apart by being in the middle, but it's set apart by the fact that, that what we are to know is expanded upon. It, it, it sets the foundation for everything else in the psalm, in the poem. So, so for that reason, the first thing we're going to do is, is examine the focal point. We're going to look at verse 3 of Psalm 100. God, through the psalmist, urges us to know that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. Now, in a world of the biblical text where, where it was just assumed that each nation and even people groups within the nation's each had their own unique gods, the people were called to know that it was Yahweh and Yahweh alone who is truly God. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. And that proclamation links directly with another Old Testament story where God proved himself to be the true God in contrast to the claims made about other false gods. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a, another pretty famous Old Testament story where Elijah sets up this challenge between Yahweh and the false god Baal. It's where everyone went up to Mount Carmel and they built two different stone altars. And then, uh, well, one of the altars was for Yahweh, one was for Baal. Then animal sacrifices were prepared and laid on each of the two altars, but they weren't set on fire. And the God who was the true God would show himself by sending fire, miraculously doing so, to consume the sacrifice that was given to him on the altar. So uh, you probably know the story. The prophets of Baal go first. They spend all day, really, hysterically calling out to Baal, only to be met by deafening silence. You know, nothing happens. 
If you made a movie out of it, there'd be crickets chirping in the background, right? Like just that awkward kind of silence. So then after all that, Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal just a little bit, kind of plays with them. And then Elijah calls the people over to Yahweh's altar. And after dousing that sacrifice in water, prays to God. Elijah prayed to God that God would make himself known, that he would make it abundantly clear that he was the true God. So what happens? What happens as this sacrifice is dripping wet and then Elijah prays? Let me, let me just read it so we can get the wording exactly. This is 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 38. So Elijah's praying, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, see if this sounds familiar, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The focal point of Psalm 100 is the same focal point as that story from Mount Carmel. The Lord, he is God. So that means that he alone is God. There's no other God like him. All the other gods of all the other religions of the world then and today are as powerless as Baal. You can insert whatever name you want for Baal. The response would be the same. The sacrifice is going to sit there on the altar and nothing's going to happen. We must not believe, we must not suggest, we must not even pretend that any other religion worships a true God or even a different manifestation of the true God. And if that sounds like an exclusive statement, then I've done my job, because it is an exclusive statement, and I mean for it to sound that way. The Lord, he is God. That's what was proclaimed on Mount Carmel. That's what is proclaimed in Psalm 100. And we must unashamedly proclaim that. The Lord, he is God. Verse 3 goes on to say it is, the Lord who made us. He is God, and it is he who made us. He's the creator. He formed us. He shaped us. He's, he's the potter, and we are the clay, like we, we talked about a few weeks ago regarding identity. We were on that subject. So while we must clearly recognize God really two things verse 3 is saying. Who God is, that he's the singular God, but then also that he has created us. So we recognize who God is and whose we are. We're his. We're his people. We're we're the sheep of his pasture, as as verse 3 says. And that statement, I think, might rightly bring to our mind perhaps the most beloved psalm in our context today, Psalm 23, right? That psalm famously depicts the Lord as our shepherd. And as our shepherd, the Lord guides us. He provides for us. He protects us. Even when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, his presence drives out fear, Psalm 23 says. Even in the presence of our enemies, he spreads out a banquet table before us. Goodness and mercy are are shown to us by our good shepherd. 
I think Psalm 100 takes us there to Psalm 23 to remember not just who God is, that's for sure part of it, but also whose we are. So when we put those two central statements in verse 3 together, who God is, whose we are, it provides an unmistakable reason for why we ought to worship God. So Nebuchadnezzar said, here's a statue, I'm going to make you bow down to it. God, through the psalmist, says, let me just remind you. Let me remind you of who I am and whose you are in relation to that. Not only is, is God's power and goodness infinitely greater than all the false gods of the world, but his power and his goodness are favorably directed toward us as the sheep of his pasture. I, I would say I don't, I don't think we... We cannot worship God if we don't rightly recognize who he is and rightly recognize whose we are. The, the, the immense gap between a holy God and a fallen humanity ought to lead us to worship him. Right? The incredible love and care shown by God to his people ought to lead us to worship him. If we find ourselves ever in a season of life where our worship just seems to be dry and it seems to be rote, then can I suggest that it might be because we haven't been rightly looking upon God and rightly looking upon ourselves in relation to God? Right? It's not our worship being dry and rote. It, it, it wouldn't be because of a person in our life who's making things difficult. It's, it's not because of the music at church. It's not because of a hardship that we face. My struggle to worship God can be traced back to the fact that I've forgotten who the Lord is. And I've forgotten that I'm a sheep of his pasture. That's what it comes back to. You know, when we, when we think about our, our corporate worship here at EBC, we've, we've got a worship council that seeks to put time and energy and thought into fostering an atmosphere of, of worship during our corporate gatherings. But the reality is all that work matters very little if each of us as a part of this church body isn't walking into this room primed and ready to go, right? It, when we've each spent time the previous week reflecting on who God is and humbly listening to him reveal to us who we are in light of his work in our lives, then we arrive on Sunday morning just bursting with worship of God, right? And, and, and that worship, and it's not just through singing, but it would, it would come out through conversations and actions and all other areas as well. It's, it's, it's rightly recognizing who God is and whose we are that leads us to rightly respond in worship. And so I want to read again the, the commands given in this psalm, the other commands that are surrounding that one to know, right? Commands which I think we cannot help but follow when we've come to know that the Lord is God. So if we go back to verse one, the first command says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Psalm 66, one similarly says, shout for joy, shout for joy to the Lord. The, 
the, the more literal interpretation of the Hebrew uh, term is, is to shout, sound the alarm, like split the ears, cry out. Like it, it, it's, a, it's a word with, with force behind it. In other words, we would say, make it known clearly, like, like our, our, our joyful noise. The picture that came to me was, that, was the story of the Battle of Jericho, right, where the people march around the city, and then finally on day seven, they, they shout, right? You know, that kind of proclamation of the victory of God, you know, that type of shouting. And man, for, for many of us with, with German-Swiss heritage flowing through our DNA, that's not real comfortable, is it? Now, I, I was impressed with the motions this morning. That, that I, I, I was impressed with, with what took place, okay? And, and I, you know, I'm the first to raise my hand. I have as much German blood flowing through me as I think possible. I've done some family heritage work, and it's like every branch of that tree goes back to, to about the same area in, in Germany, Switzerland, France, all right there. And, you know, maybe what we need is, you know, those of us that, that have, you know, some Scottish-Irish, you know, we need some good Scottish-Irish people or, or Greek or, or African blood, you know, to, to kind of help us along in this area. But, uh, you know, but regardless of our ancestry, right, we can't, we can't just blame it on that. Regardless of our ancestry, we're called to make a joyful noise. And it comes from that response to knowing that the Lord is God and knowing that we are his, we are the sheep of his pasture. So we're called to make a joyful noise, verse 1. Verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. The word serve is, is the same word for worship in the Hebrew. Same word. There's a sense in which our worship of God our serving of God is, is work. There's work to it. Some of the, the people of Israel at that time would have traveled a great distance to go worship God at the temple. Some of them would have lived close to Jerusalem. Others would have, would have had pretty far to go. They would have spent weeks and months raising animals or, or crops that they would bring to the temple to sacrifice to God on the altar. Their, their worship cost something but it could still be done with gladness, as verse 2 says. And the reason it can still be done with gladness is because of the God that they're worshiping. Makes me think of, of Jacob, who worked for seven years for his bride. And then when his future father-in-law tricked him, he worked another seven for his bride. And, and those years seemed to him but a few days, the text says. How can 14 years seem like just a few days well, it's because of his, his love for Rachel. Jesus, uh, 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 Jacob viewed Rachel as worth it. And so when my worship, when your worship of God costs us something, it's completely worth it. It's completely worth it. We can worship and serve God with gladness because he is worth it. Verse 2 goes on to say, uh, Come into his presence with singing. And then the beginning of verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Both of those commands, to come and to enter, it's the same Hebrew word. We're called to approach God's presence with singing and, and thankful praise. Uh, Pastor Tim spoke about singing a couple weeks ago, and I'll kind of stand alongside him and bring it up again, kind of piggyback off what he was saying. 
from the earliest days of God choosing his people all the way until Revelation where songs of worship are sung to God in heaven. God's people are people who sing our worship. It, it, is, it is right and proper for us to worship God, especially corporately through singing. You know, singing allows a group of people, even a large group of people, to come together and, and worship God as one. It, it, it unites us together, music does, in, in a way that, that simply speaking or even chanting doesn't do. It's really unique when you think about it. And whatever musical ability you feel that you do or don't have when it comes to singing, if you have breath in your lungs, ought to be singing praises, singing worship to God. And I wanna, I wanna speak to the men for just a moment because somewhere along the line, and I don't know where it was at what point in our, in our society's history, or I don't know where it became manly to not sing or it became not manly to sing, that's a better way to say it. I, I, don't, I don't know when that happened. But we as the followers of Jesus need to put that stereotype to rest. We, we need to get rid of that. God made male voices different than female voices, obviously. I, I, he did it for a reason, and I'm convinced one of those reasons is, is so that we can't push off our responsibility to sing to women. And, and vice versa, women can't push it off to men as well. That, there, there's a special beauty that honors God when male and female voices are worshiping God together amidst their differences. Right? We're, we're, we're called. We're called to come into his presence with singing. Psalm 100, like, like many other places in the Bible, calls us to rightly respond in worship of God through singing. Verse 4 also goes on, says, give thanks to him. Command's pretty straightforward. Not a lot needs to be added to that, but I do want to point out how, how the thankfulness of, of God's people ought to be different from the thankfulness of others who are not followers of Christ. And if I can go back to the language of Psalm 23, the thankfulness of God's people does include when he leads us beside still waters and, and, and makes us lie down in green pastures. We, we give thanks for those things, for sure. But the thankfulness of God's people shouldn't be limited to just, to just still waters and calm pastures. Our thankfulness ought to also include our journey through the valley of the shadow of death as God protects us and guides us through it. It ought to also include his provision for us in the presence of our enemies. I mean, Paul calls the church to give thanks in all circumstances. And so we recognize pain and suffering that can come during different seasons of life, but we ought to continue to rightly recognize who God is in the midst of those. He's our shepherd who will never leave us or forsake us. He's, his presence with us is secure in those times. You know, it's during difficult times that, that we most intimately experience that reality of who God is. Many times it's when something else that's taken away, when, when something else is taken away from us, we, 
we gain more of, we don't gain more of God, but we recognize more who God is. We experience it in a deeper way in our lives. And as a result, we can give thanks for the added intimacy and the deepened trust that, that are fostered during those hard times. That's very different than the thankfulness that someone who's not a follower of Christ would give. The things which the world would never thank God for, we can because of who our God is and whose we are. It always goes back to that. And then finally, the end of verse 4 says, Bless his name. Uh, our right desire is, is, is to see God's name honored and, and proclaimed across the world. Um, as Jesus says in, in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. Same kind of idea. We do that as we gather together, we proclaim God's greatness, we, we do it in our daily lives as, as we submit to God's greatness, as he leads us. All of these commands in, in Psalm 100 are, are, are the good and proper way that we ought to respond to God in worship. So whereas King Nebuchadnezzar sought to force people to bow down, God's people should be drawn willingly and enthusiastically into worship of God in response to his character and in response to his work in our lives. And then verse 5 just, just puts a bow on the whole thing. We are reminded that who God is and whose we are will never change. It'll never change. Verse 5 is the affirmation that we can rightly rest in the unchanging nature of God. God's steadfast love will endure forever. His faithfulness will remain firm for all generations. And there's a lot of generations that have passed since those words were first written. God's faithfulness has remained, and it will continue. You, you might say that, that verse 5 it, what it proclaims is that verse 3 is not some kind of divine bait and switch. Right? It's, not, it's not as if God presents himself one way for a moment and gets us worshiping him and then just pulls the rug out from under us and, you know, no, now what do we do? You know, it, it's not as if one day we're, we're secure as the sheep of his pasture and then the next day we're, we're, we're kicked out, forced to fend for ourselves. Verse 5 says that that's never going to be the case. There's so many things that change in this world. Perhaps things change more quickly now than they ever have in recorded history. Kind of can seem that way. We change. I mean, I, I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago, five years ago, even yesterday. I'm a different person than I was yesterday. Now, hopefully that change within me is God-honoring, but, but it's still change regardless. Verse 5 proclaims God does not change. These truths about God will never be more or less true than on the day that they were recorded in this psalm. And in fact, when, when Jesus came to earth some 500 years after this psalm was written, he confirmed all these truths. He confirmed them. By Jesus, all things were made. Jesus is the I am. Jesus is the good shepherd he is the name that is above every name. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, Jesus is quite literally worthy of all our worship. 
He confirmed everything that's written here. Uh, We really are people who have abundant reason to give thanks. And, you know, not not only should our thankfulness extend beyond a holiday on the calendar. I mean, it, it should go beyond just Thanksgiving Day, but it ought to be broader in nature than the thankfulness of our world as well. As we grow in our knowledge of who God is and in our knowledge of who we are in him, then it just, it, it ought to rightly overflow in worship. I mean, that, that ought to just be what happens. Psalm 100 is, is a guide for us in that. It sets the tone for what right worship looks like in response to those things. We have so very much to be thankful for. And it all starts with that focal point of, of this psalm in verse 3. It all starts with knowing that the Lord is God and knowing that we are his. That's what drives worship. That's where it starts. That's where it overflows from us. So I pray that we know that to be true. Time that we spend on Sunday or Monday or any day, time that we spend pondering those two things, who God is and whose we are, leads us to worship. It fills us, takes us to that place of worship so there doesn't have to be, have to be forcefully drawn out of us. It just overflows. The things that Psalm 100 leads us to do are just what happens as we focus on those things. So let's stand together. Let's come before God in prayer. Give him thanks in prayer for who he is and whose we are, but then we'll get to end worshiping in response to that as well. So let's pray. God, we are here this morning We are reminded that that it is you who are God, the Lord. He is God. I'm thankful for the truth of that. God, you are most worthy to be praised. You've shown yourself to be worthy. You've shown yourself on Mount Carmel. You've shown yourself all throughout history to be the one and only God who's worthy of praise. We want to recognize that this morning. God, help us to understand that more and more deeply. Not just so that our knowledge of you grows, but so that our worship of you is impacted. And God, along with that, remind us of whose we are as well. You've brought us as your people into your family, into the the sheep pen, as as Psalm 100 talks about, where we're the we're the sheep of your pasture. We're so thankful for that, God. We know we didn't earn it. We know that it was you. It was you coming, you giving of yourself on the cross that allows us to be brought in. And God, we're thankful for that this morning. May that impact our worship as well. God, and in those moments where where we can easily forget or be distracted, remind us of who you are and remind us of whose we are. 
Bring a person into our, our life uh, to, to remind us of that. God, do it supernaturally to take us back to your word. Whatever it takes, remind us of those things. God, that we might return to rightly worshiping you. God, as we close now, singing more songs of praise to you, may they not just be words, but may it be the overflow of, of those two things, a recognition of who you are and whose we are. We're so thankful, God. It's because of that that we praise you this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.